Welcome back to another episode of Burned by the Firewall. I am your host, Michael Krupka, and I am excited to have in studio with me today one of my sidekicks at OccamSec, one of our, um, our cloud engineers, Jason Sewell, who will be jumping in uh, as the topics today get a little bit over my head. Jason will help keep us afloat because we have a, a very special guest lined up for you guys, Josh, who is joining us. Josh is a, a cyber ninja. He, he boasts his GSSP, his GWAPT, his GCIH, and his expertise, as you could tell, is in cloud and network forensics, as well as being an application security engineer expert. So we have a, a host of really cool questions lined up for Josh. Without further ado, Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate the invite. Very excited to be here with you. Hey, so just to get started, can you give us a little bit of an idea of kind of how you got to be in your position, maybe a little bit of your professional journey um, and, you know, sort of what it took to, to get to your position today? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a, it's a fun trip down memory lane. I, uh, like most people, I got my start, um, you know, 20 plus years ago working in systems and systems engineering. I started off as a network engineer um, and I uh, did some work uh, as like a government contractor type. And then that was great and that's super fun. And anybody who's worked with the ins and outs of network traffic can tell you that it is rewarding in that there is a positive and a negative outcome. Like you, it, it, it's one of those things that like, if you're a construction engineer at the end of the day, you could say, look, I built, I built this room, I built this house. You have a functional end state and being a, a network engineer, at least uh, you know, superficially and top, topically gives you that same sort of uh, gratification of, okay, like things are working, things are talking. I don't have to worry about the layer seven stuff because everything is communicating now that's somebody else's problem. Um, you know, in, as part of that gig, um, as I moved around, um, as people are wont to do um, in tech fields, as things get boring or, or less interesting, um, I moved into a job with some really, really bright people who were, were, were already chock full of network engineering staff. So when I came on, they said, we hired you because of your expertise, but we're hoping that we can fit you into a different bucket of, of skill sets. So at that, at that gig, I worked with more, you know, Linux development um, you know, uh, writing some code, writing some bash scripting, writing some Python scripting and doing some information assurance work. And I found that amongst that group, even though it was at the time, very compliant centric, the information assurance type of work uh, was really appealing and, and no, and, and moving from a place where you're just trying to get things work as an operations guy and into a place where you're working with good guys and bad guys and, you know, providing that kind of, uh, defenses, um, was really appealing to me. And so I, I, I hopped around after that and did a lot of infosec type jobs. I started out um, just doing a lot of compliance related work, a lot of risk management framework stuff, a lot of uh, vulnerability scanning type work, which I feel like is a place that most of us get started in at some place and then moved on to um, some of the more challenging work that that led to, which was uh, writing secure code, doing some uh, pen testing work, um, you know, web app pen testing um, and, and code analysis a uh, little bit of exploit development. And then ultimately when I got sick of banging on the front door and breaking into stuff um, that led to, to moving over to the other side and, and, and uh, detecting those kinds of attacks and attackers and, and, and trying to see if uh, all the creative methods that uh, pen testers will use and application security guys will use to get in uh, is something that we can catch them in the act of and prevent them from doing, which, which has been uh, very rewarding. And I've spent, you know, more, more time doing this than anything else. That's a really interesting background. Again, I think you, you touch on a point where a, a lot of professionals start in that sort of vulnerability scanning place and they kind of grow from there. And I want to talk about real quick before we dive into more of the, the technical stuff, some of your growth in that 
if I'm not mistaken, Josh, you, you spent some time in Hawaii. And since some of us here on the podcast are based in Hawaii, maybe you can talk to the, the audience about your ties back to Hawaii. And then I want to ask you a couple uh, local spot questions just to get your opinion. Oh, man. Um, so, yeah. So I, I was, uh, you know, prior to all of this, I was I was Navy, um, as many of the people who find their way to Hawaii are in some some branch of the military. And, um, you know, I, I was uh, as, as, as a very, very young sir, uh, my family had lived there, too. So that was kind of my second time swinging through the islands. And it's just, you know, it is it is every bit the stereotype that everyone makes it out to be and that it is beautiful and is gorgeous. And it's and it's an unexpected slice of paradise in the middle of, you know, an American uh, framework. And it makes it hard to understand how we like kind of govern Hawaiian islands the same way we do the rest of places because there is no place in the rest of the United States that's that's even remotely similar to Hawaii but yeah it's 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 a cool spot and I've enjoyed uh, my time out there very much and I respect that when you live there it's a very different experience but um you know I I can't I I, as of right now I I can't picture ever getting tired of being there so talk to us about your favorite local eats maybe you have a I don't know a favorite type of food or a restaurant that sticks out to you and then we'll move on to some technical stuff God, I love that we're doing this, man, because I, I remember having a conversation with some buddies recently uh, and, and saying like, man, like you ain't like if you don't have the loco moco, if you're not getting the right kind of Simon, we're talking about this kind of stuff. And I remember realizing about 20 seconds into the conversation that absolutely nobody had any idea what we were talking about. And these aren't like, this isn't a lexicon that's shared by anybody outside of the islands. But um, I think that um, Huli Huli chicken is, 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 you know, special and unique. The, the span musubi, like, when I find that in places outside the island, like it is rare and far, far, you know, few and far between. I love that stuff. Um, and I think that um, my love of ramen and the, the incredible ramen scene that we have out here on the East Coast is, is always um, from that Simon scene that, that you guys have on, on the Big Island uh, and on Kauai. Bro, I'm hungry now. Yeah, right? We shouldn't have started with this. <laughs> well, no. See, now we worked up our appetite to talk about all the other fun stuff. And let's <laughs> let's dive right into that. I think one of the topics that Jason and I kind of landed on before the podcast was we, we definitely want to probe and get your, your input on the main differences between executing a cloud versus network or on-prem forensic investigation and, and just kind of take us down what that looks like and what the main differences might be for you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw around a phrase that is been, has been bandied about very, very recently and is very timely right now. And it's that, you know, the, the perimeter is no longer the perimeter. The perimeter is identity now. And, and identity is not a thing that's often going to be stored or it's not going to be stored exclusively in your data centers and your on-prem environments. So um, the biggest difference between executing uh, cloud-based forensic investigations or even like hybrid cloud environments um, is, is understanding what parts of that identity solution live in both kinds of places and being able to evaluate um, activity there properly. And that's a, a loaded question because the things that we use and the tools and the procedures and checklists and, and automated um, software that we use to check for identity and for the abuse of identity on-prem is very easy to collect a full uh, forensic accounting from. Um, when, you're, when you're looking at that kind of stuff in the cloud, now you've moved on to an API-based uh, structure in which you have to have a little bit more of a uh, relationship with your customers in that like they have to give you the ability to kind of see this stuff. You're not able to just grab disk images or memory images and go in most cases. And that um, you're working with advanced and distributed technology sets in which users and data and identities like kind of flow across uh, multiple different places. And unless you have the right kind of mind to be able to track and make that kind of map of where things live and how things communicate 
um, and, and be flexible and be willing to learn those new technology sets every, in every unique situation, then you're going to be uh, in, in uh, you know, tough sledding. And, and the, the other big uh, part that comes along with doing uh, cloud-based forensics is, is understanding how these cloud services work. And that is a um, fluid situation. In order to, to, to properly evaluate these environments, whether you're talking about, you know, a Google, uh, uh, you know, Google Workplace, G Suite, GCP, AWS, uh, Azure, it doesn't matter. They, they all have uh, a similar core set of technologies, but they all also have services that are unique and that represent unique uh, avenues for uh, compromise and for forensics. So you have to at least have a functional understanding of how these things work, how these platforms communicate with each other, how they store data and how they utilize that identity piece in order to restrict people from, you know, kind of breaking out of their bubble. Um, most of the things we preach are that um, vulnerabilities are not the key problem for most people in their cloud environments, you know, recent events notwithstanding what, what ends up being the problem with, with, with cloud environments and, and allows the bad guys access to the crown jewels tends to be just service misconfigurations. They tend to be user error and not driven necessarily by uh, vulnerable software. When you, when you bring up, um, you know, kind of identity as the new perimeter, right? I know that, like you said, that's kind of been thrown around a lot, but um, can you kind of just in your, you know, kind of in your words, what is kind of, what does that mean? Cause I, I think sometimes when we talk to people about that, that, you know, they, it, it, they don't know how to resonate or kind of like think about that, you know, and what it means. So what does that mean to you, I guess, in, in your own words? That's a, that's a good question. And it's, and it's something that we should be rehearsed at talking about because it's not a concept that um, folks tend who have been in this industry tend to understand intrinsically. Um, when we talk about identity being the new perimeter, generally speaking for, you know, 15, 20 years, folks designed, perimeters with everything uh, preventing intrusions on the outside in the perimeter um, and then would try to harden and enclave, you know, a couple layers, the defense and depth concept. And then on the middle of that, you still had the same kind of authentication and authorization me mechanisms. You only checked once on resource access. You still had single factor authentication, especially for privileged access accounts. You weren't setting up jump boxes. You weren't, um, you know, you weren't uh, utilizing uh, certificate based authentication. You weren't doing anything to protect user identities. So anything that allowed you to circumvent that hard outer shell gave you the keys to the kingdom. So if we treat identity as something that can be uh, attacked from a, a threat actor or an adversary, and that we assume breach and that we assume that the places that we store that identity information are vulnerable and are accessible, then it allows us to kind of set um, the kind of mindset and the kind of philosophies around those kind of places where, um, and, and multi-factor is a good first, first stop. And a lot of pen testers will say, well, that you know, multi-factor is just a, a speed bump along the road for us to get to where we need to go. But the reality is that um, if you are using least privileged principles and if you are um, making sure that your service accounts aren't accessible on the outside where people can can hit them with APIs, all of these kinds of things, um, working through like kind of a dynamic user story type pen test exercise to, to figure out, um, it'll let you harden individual identity services to a point where um, one breach there doesn't necessarily mean a, a complete ownage of the network for lack of better terms. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's actually probably the best definition that I've ever heard of that. So yeah, I'm gonna play that one back. So uh, yeah, yeah, no, that was great, thank you. Yeah, I hate to use terms like um, multi-factor and I hate to use terms like least privilege because those kind of 
speak about those talk about services the way that we understood them 10 years ago. And really all I'm trying to say is that we have to restrict things down to like the base units and, and build in um, detection mechanisms that let us know if things have been touched that haven't in a relevant amount of time. And also make sure that, like I said, if, if, if your credential uh, use does manage to get, um, get, get popped, that it isn't one credential use leading to a massive cascade of, of uh, impacts. So, so thanks. Yeah, Josh, I think sort of where this is, is sort of wound around to is, is a topic that, that's really big, I think, uh, recently and just in general is zero trust. And I want to get your, your thoughts on zero trust, specifically at the private, the private sector level, you know, how best to implement it and just any sort of insights or uh, cautions or anything that you might want to share about that. Yeah, I'm glad we fulfilled our contractual obligations to use like the most important buzzwords up front in this conversation because because zero <laughs> trust is it, man. Like if you if you right. are a CIO or a CISO and you're not talking about zero trust trust as your base architecture, then I don't even know what we're doing out here, man. Um, but yeah, right. zero trust just basically means assume breach. Like like we said in the last session, it's, it means assume that every individual component of your system is going to have untrusted or untrustworthy sources around them. And so when you design applications and you design all of the multi-tier, uh, you know, uh, front end to back end stack pieces that will touch that, you have to assume that each one of those can be compromised. And if you do that in a way in which that compromise doesn't necessarily, A, you know, take down your whole application platform, B, doesn't allow a user to um, reuse the identity or the credentials that they, that, that piece um, was giving up and that the, um, the management and auditing and you know visibility into those remains independent, so that you can you can track what's going on between the stacks, and it gives you a good first leg into that um, kind of architecture. And again, th that that speaks to that identity as a perimeter uh, concept from the beginning. In that we should assume in a zero trust environment that um, that if you're if you have one credential that can be used in like a single sign-on fashion across multiple sources, then you need to understand that. Um, those things are kind of in a pod together. They're in a COVID pod together and that they should be treated in, in, in the same uh, group of risk, that, that the risk for those is shared. And I think that that's a really difficult concept for people that like, hey, if I live in your same enclave here and we're sharing an identity, then that means that we are the same. That means that anything that, that, that one person does is the same for another. And that's not how we want to architect new systems because they don't need to be architected that way. Uh, speaking of the architecture, I mean, kind of like, um, I, I think... One of the challenges is, you know, or perceived challenges, I don't know, this is kind of from, I guess, from what I've seen is, you know, the, the breadth of services and, and kind of the scope of, you know, where these identities reach and stuff, I think are very, probably hard for people to understand, especially at the pace, you know, that things move and, um, and you have multi-cloud and just the breadth of all of what it is. Um, I guess, do, you know, do you have any kind of strategies or, or you know, workflows that, that help people kind of think about zero trust and, and, and when everything is so granular that way, like how do you go about, you know, checking off all those boxes? And... Uh, you know, maybe this is a piss poor analogy, but I think about it a little bit of the same way that I think about, uh, I, I think about multi-cloud the same way I think about like internet of things at home. You know, when we, when we set up home environments, we're talking about like creating multiple layers and enclaves for trust. We have IOT level trust, we have our home, uh, you know, phones, laptops, whatever for trust. We have cameras on another, you know, trust environment and we create trust boundaries between those kind of things. When we're talking multi-cloud, we also need to approach it from the same trust boundaries of, you know, my SaaS applications and my cloud-based hybrid uh, 
services and my on-prem services maybe don't need to share the same identity. I know it, it, it speaks to that usability security functionality triangle that if I take away from your usability, if I make it harder for you to use these systems with the same credentials or with the same services, if I don't connect everything directly using API, um, that's going to make your life harder and it may, might bifurcate your data sets and all this kind of stuff. But when we, uh, you know, when we connect all these kinds of things and when we share the identity and when we sh share services, then we are then we are introducing that risk. And then that's something that we have to uh, measure. And that's something that we have to be aware of. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those kinds of things, but I'm saying that when we enter into those kind of arrangements that we need to have the visibility into it to understand, you know, the cascading impact for a breach. If, if this part is breached, then these parts are also always breached and they need to be part of our incident response plans to be able to uh, rotate to the services immediately, but also um, that where we have the, the kind of like cyber relevant visibility where, where as, as these attacks begin, as things go down, that we're able to detect these kind of things in minutes and hours and not in days and weeks because, you know, Verizon puts out the, the breach report every year that shows how long it takes bad guys to move around when they come into your environment. Um, motivated bad guys can start doing things in, you know, 30 to 60 minutes. So if you have these kind of shared multi-cloud environments, when you have these shared trusts, when you have these shared credentials, it means that if you are not detecting bad guy activity in minutes and hours, then you are giving enough time for people to, to break out and move. And at that point, what, what could be a bad breach turns into a catastrophic breach. So talk to me a little bit about some of the, I guess, unique attacks that you're seeing in the cloud right now, or ones that have your attention that you might want to comment on today. Unique stuff that we've seen over the last year or two, um, obviously, like we, we've talked a lot about cloud here. We've started to see places where that uh, cloud to on-prem uh, trust relationship through like AD HashSync and the like is being utilized more and more. Um, and that the trust relationships that Microsoft components uh, give to each other in that kind of environment. Um, when we talk about hybrid cloud has been has been um, taken advantage of quite a bit. And that has been new and novel because I don't think that, you know, two, three years ago, people were really talking about uh, cloud as a part of the forensic toolkit. Like for the most part, cloud as part of an attack um, just meant infrastructure as a service that like you had some servers that were running up in the compromise and attack path was exactly the same as it would be as it's on-prem. Now we're starting to see um, those services kind of manipulated. We're starting to see um, folks taking advantage of the, um, you know, the M365 and Azure environments and using those as a, as a, as a gateway kind of into on-premise environments. And I think that those have been very interesting to see. Um, we've also started from, you know, from the cloud perspective that, that I think is cool is when we have started to see how AWS services are utilizing these kind of breach patterns that it tends to be via the APIs and what people can do to enumerate users and to use those APIs just continually without any kind of visibility, uh, ping the services. Um, AWS issued a, a public statement like two, three weeks ago talking about how um, the only way you can stop folks from enumerating some of their services on the outside looking in is to just have good, you know, uh, naming conventions and good like cyber hygiene practices for how you name accounts, which is basically their way of saying like our services are architected to not stop this, to not keep people from being able to do recon and enumeration type stuff on it. And so when you couple that with, and there's a lot of literature out there, the, the fact that um, services in AWS kind of pass credentials and API keys between the two of them um, to facilitate the, the direct data handoff of, of information between them, then what you've got is some services that were kind of designed if you're already in the environment to be taken advantage of. 
Um, and so um, the, the key there again is to not let people have the ability to see that exchange, not, not be able to, to let people be in the environment and see the handoff and be able to intercept those kinds of API-based credentials, um, which, which has been really interesting. That, that, again, like that is a very different way of evaluating the uh, forensic makeup of you know, hybrid environments versus like looking at dead disk forensics and, and artifacts through history. You're looking at the flow of information between services and, that, and that's been really fun. And that's been really cool. Curious, kind of on top of that, um, you know, as it relates to, to what we do, um, you know, specifically kind of as, you know, offensive security and, and looking at the cloud, um, you know, I, I think from, from a personal point of view is, you know, when you're, when you're even doing a penetration test and trying to emulate, you know, you, you know, what attackers are going to do, um, you know, there's a lot of, history and kind of standard practices and mature tools and stuff when, when working with on-prem environments. But um, I guess, do you have any advice, you know, in terms of knowing what's going on and, and knowing, you know, uh, you know, the, the practices and the TTPs and stuff like that to, to be emulating when you're going into these kinds of things? Um, so what I've found helpful recently, both from the offensive side and the defensive side is, um, the, the Atomic Red and the Caldera Labs, they have a lot of um, software-defined infrastructure as code type environments that can be used to do this kind of threat modeling. And that's good. It's, you know, it's better from a defensive standpoint to be able to say, here is this, you know, like MITRE ATT&CK TTP that people use to get initial access in the environment. It, you know, it, it utilizes more like a credential spray, password stuffing type attack. But um, when you deconstruct that on both sides of the house, you get to see... Um, what tools are being used for enumeration and what tools are being used by, you know, the, 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 the most common set of attacks, but you're also able to, to kind of work through each one of those threat modeling scenarios to see if it's producing the telemetry that you need in your environment to be able to see it. And if your techniques are, are picking up on it, it's a great red versus blue kind of tool. Um, you've, you've hit on one of my favorite kind of interview questions, which is like, how do people stay updated on, on what is going on in the rest of the world in terms of offensive security? Uh, and the answer is that there's lots of right answers. The answer is um, when you, uh, you know, if you want to uh, be up on Twitter, that's a great source for, you know, OpenSec um, questions and, and, and techniques. Reddit has, has some great threads on penetration testing in the cloud um, and, and good examples of that. Um, you know, the SANS content that they put out in terms of um, tool sets they, they, they publish, um, you know, a, a great timely bit of unique and individual tools, 50 or 60 a year that are still relevant in the space and that work in these kind of cloud environments. And we're seeing a, um, a real breakout of training focused around it. We see a lot of the, the big vendors now offering, you know, AWS, Azure base pen testing uh, capabilities in which they really pay good heed to the nuances of, of uh, pen testing these kind of environments. And I like that uh, for the most part, um, both AWS and Microsoft are, are, are good about not restricting that kind of testing. That I think that we were in a place 10, 10 years ago as these services were just coming online uh, where cloud was considered like you, you wouldn't want to bang on a, a service that's running in the cloud because you wouldn't want to anger the crowd, cloud vendor, which kept people from being able to emulate these kind of attacks and test it and do that kind of stuff. And, 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 and they've taken a big turn on that. I think that nowadays, as long as you are being upfront about what the usage scenarios are, um, that, that you can you can now get into a place where you're doing that and you can do that in a repeatable way which i really like through the use of things like terraform and cloud formation to set up your your environments for it okay so as we sort of dig into uh the cloud a little bit more and we're talking about the, the misconfigurations being one of the the biggest issues in the cloud 
what what are some of those critical mistakes that you see in those environments as you're going back through and trying to tell tell the story of what happened in an incident so it's not it's not any different from how we run into uh, serious problems in on-prem networks that we do in the cloud environments in that they are designed by developers who do not have security baked into the beginning of their sec DevOps process um, that things we're working on and, and, you know, financial industry, big business, they're much better about this because they have stakeholders to report to and they've got uh, regulations that we don't have to pay attention to. Um, but in smaller business environments where cloud represents the biggest opportunity to save money and to cut costs and to modernize services, we see either a lift and shift where we're just taking exactly what the crappy on-prem security look like and picking it up and dropping it and making a crappy in the cloud security product, um, or we're, we're building new things in the cloud where we're not baking security in upfront. Um, and that's, that's true for applications too. Um, it doesn't matter what kind of built-in security services you're getting from that commercial cloud vendor. If you are building applications in it that are inherently un insecure, then they're going to have the same problems. Then people are still going to be able to use those application vulnerabilities to, uh, you know, to, to, to enumerate your data and to, to, to pull things back. They don't have any um, uh, permission to really be looking at. So, uh, those are the two big things that I see. I, I see a lack of um, security baked in from the front. I also see historically, and I'm sure um, Jason can speak to this at great length too, is that I see a, a failure in the security operator responsibility model that comes with commercial cloud environments and that folks get into business with these guys and they get sold a bill of goods on how secure it is. And they think that they don't have any responsibility to participate in that. They say, oh, okay, like I see that Amazon has web application firewalls and tra you know transit uh, you know, full TLS 1.2 encryption transit and blah, blah, blah. Like all of these great security bells and whistles that are so much better in, in function than what we had on prem. And then they leave an S3 bucket world writable. And like, so, and it's the big joke with, with, AIM, with, with cloud services, right? Like 70% uh, of breaches are because of somebody's world writable S3 bucket. But the reality is that when you're working with cutting edge services and bleeding edge technologies, when you are using the things that made it so attractive to move to the cloud in the first place, that carries with it an added security burden that people aren't factoring in and that you have to tread carefully. And you just have to understand that just because you are in the cloud does not mean you do not have the same onus to um, bring in uh, experts to be able to secure that environment and conduct the same kinds of assessments and, and really think about that as a tool. When, when the solar winds breach went public and people were dunking on Solar winds for um, for their their supply chain practices. My first thought was, well, it's not really a supply supply chain issue that they have if they've got you know single factor passwords to their environment or they have weak passwords and things like that. We're talking about cyber hygiene things. We're talking about the basics, and and when we're talking about cloud environments, it's the exact same thing. It's it's are you baking in security principles and evaluating your own stuff to, to, to make sure you have that continual enforcement of your your policies and, and practices. I think one of the challenges I've seen too is that. Um, you know, kind of developer democratization of, you know, of deployment and configuration and all that kind of stuff. And even people that, you know, potentially that aren't developers that, you know, it's a new environment and you know that all these security controls are in place, but to, to really grok them and go, you know, to a deep level. And, you know, especially when you're talking about like AWS, I mean, just the breadth of things and, and the pace that people have to move at. But, um, but I think that's, for sure, one of one of the patterns that I've seen is that you know developers have more agency 
over these environments and you're, you know, I, I think for some people even having to go, even if they're ops people having to get, you know, uh, used to scripting and, and infrastructure as code, you know, that's not what they've been doing for 15, you know, 15, 20 years or whatever. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, I think, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just a hard job to keep up with all of that. And, you know, and, and again, just the visibility. So um, I, I like what you mentioned earlier about kind of like, um, you know, the Caldera tools and stuff like that of being able to see all kind of the events that are going on, because I think that's, that's probably it, one of the things that I, I think gets missed the most is what's going on under the hood. Like people don't have any idea, you know, cause it's all, it's all switches, you know? And, and so, um, so yeah, that's, that's cool. But yeah, it's, it's, it's hard for sure. Hey, Josh, talk to us about one of the coolest incidents that you've been a part of that, that you can talk to in detail or at a high level, kind of what happened, what you found. And yeah, I just, just want to hear you talk story about one of the coolest incidents that, that you've been a part of, or you and your team have been a part of. Um, all the, all the super cool stuff in this space is, is, um, is Abu Nai is, is, as, as they say, as, as our Japanese friends say is, is dangerous, but I want to talk about something that's, uh, that was funny to me is I worked with a, um, a, a big energy customer. Um, and it was really intriguing to me after, you know, years of working with government systems or, or as a defense contractor in, in all these different kinds of places and um, seeing how you have to make things work with um, older technology sets and, and more challenging integrations to see, okay, this is what you can do if money is not an object. This is what you do when you roll into a place and like the cafeteria has all you can drink like Starbucks in the lobby. You just walk up and, and help yourself to stuff and has like the big, you know, soda coolers everywhere you go in the, in the good life. And as a developer, you could say like, this is what would have happened if I'd sold my soul to the devil. I get to have all this fun stuff. Um, but what I thought was interesting in these kind of environments is that um, often the, um, the services, the IT services and security services are outsourced and they're outsourced to a, a variety of vendors, which creates its, its own interesting dynamic in that you have different chunks of the people who are responsible for the ecosystem with different levels of visibility and knowing where different skeletons are buried. And that's not a conversation that ends up being translated easily to a CISO or CIO is that like, you're not getting that full wholesome picture. So the thing about being a good incident response team is that you get the visibility that lots of different people individually have to give in order to, to put that together, but that we get all of it. We see all the data flows. We see all the endpoint statistics. We see all the cloud flows. We see what you're using for an identity and we see what is covered and is not covered by your tooling. Um, and so this was an example in which um, every single day of this uh, incident was like a new incident because every time we'd pull back the covers on one thing or we'd, we'd, we'd take off one wrapper, um, we'd then talk to a different company uh, or a different component within this organization, which would say, oh yeah, like I, that is interesting. Like, yeah, we, we know that that's not supposed to be talking to that. And we noticed that last year. And so we'd go talk to the next people over. We talked to, you know, some of the industrial side guys and they'd give us a different perspective. And ultimately what it led to was a rich understanding that like all of the IT operations were outsourced to an infrastructure provider in India and that that uh, infrastructure provider had been hacked like two years beforehand and that they'd never conducted any kind of activity at the customer site to change anything after the uh, IT infrastructure provider was hacked. So, so we had to trace back to literally like years behind historical context to figure out what had happened during that event to be able to provide context to what was happening during the event that we were there with. And, one, and, and it was really like um, 
an, like a like a um, what's the Christmas movie with Scrooge? I think Scrooge. No, I mean Scrooge is the adult version, but what's the one with the uh, it's a, a Christmas Carol? Christmas Carol, yeah. Christmas, Christmas Carol, Carol or a Muppet or a Muppet Christmas Carol, if you want the better retelling of it. One of my favorite Christmas movies of all time. But it was like the Ghost of Christmas Past. We had to go talk to the Ghost of Christmas Past or the Ghost of Incident Past to figure out specifically what had happened, just so that we could get a, re- a better understanding of what uh, what was out there in their environment that let us characterize the, the current incident what was going on. So, so I thought that was really cool. It was also in a really fun city that had great food and a and a um, very very comprehensive beer scene so it was a situation in which like at the end of every day we walk out shaking our heads but then we were able to like kind of uh, console ourselves with with great food and with great beer and 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 it it kept us moving the important things the important things in life (laughs) hey so um i guess in terms of with those types of incidents and as your team uncovers all these juicy details what are some of the uh, the, the things that you would recommend CISOs or ISOs do or uh, an incident response team does on location that are helpful for an investigation team like yours or are like absolutely do not do type things that are going to make your job even harder? I'll start by saying uh, feeding people as a CIO or a CISO when they come to perform uh, critical services for you, even if you're paying them a buttload of money is always a good place to start. Like, you know, the, the way to most uh, nerds hearts is through, uh, through food, through food and, uh, you know, the right, uh, you know, the right setups. So that's always a good first start. But, um, broadly speaking, this isn't an answer that's super sexy or fun. Um, most people would be like, Oh, make sure you focus on this tool set or make sure you focus on this te- these kind of techniques. Uh, make sure you stay on the cutting edge. I would say that the most important part for effective instant response from both sides is communication is not starting from a place in which you are only trying to dole out enough information to cover butts but that you are not giving your incident responders and your security team the full picture. So, so from the start, make sure all, all people are on the same page with um, what the hypothesis is, what they think happened, what the environment is structured to be able to do and what the environment is not being not structured to be able to do. The sooner you get to a place where your incident response team or your uh, pen test team or whoever else understands the strengths and weaknesses of the environment as a whole, the sooner they can begin to start working through their um, through their scenarios, through their techniques, through their um, playbooks, and the better fidelity you're going to get on the outcome, whether that's on the offensive side or on the defensive side. The most important thing for me historically has always been to establish rapport with the customer that I'm working with. Make sure that the customer understands that this isn't a opportunity to get somebody fired or to point fingers at a security administrator who, you know, misconfigured something or you know has a vulnerable application that's out there. It's a um, let's not let that answer be something that we have to report up to stakeholders or not something that we have to, to report um, to the media because we're talking about people's personal identifiable information. So, so for me, it's, it's, it's getting that really, really rich understanding of, of how the, ar- the, the environment is architected, how the security tooling and services factor in, where the hooks are, you know, what the visibility and attack surface looks like, and then being able to work off of that hypothesis that I mentioned earlier. Like if I was so-and-so, and I had cause to be able to um, want to get into your environment and do bad things, um, what are the places that I could, I could um, compromise to do that? What are, the, what are the services that are my most vulnerable? And let's do a really good look at the forensic accounting uh, going in and out of those services, or if you're coming from the offensive side uh, with the, 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 the profile of those kinds of things. Because uh, hiding things or keeping skeletons in the closet at the end of the day is, is counterproductive to both of these exercises. 
that seems pretty pretty self apparent but I, I i think that that is the inclination for a lot of professionals to try to get on that defensive that cya tack so i think that's good advice josh um i think we've touched on a bunch of really unique and interesting topics today uh, i really appreciate your time and, and coming on the show i want to kind of open it up to you and give you the floor if you have any closing thoughts or anything any resources or tools that you want to plug anything that you want to talk about i want to give you the floor um, I don't really like, I don't get kickbacks from anybody, uh, for prepping for, for, uh, talking about their tools, but I know in the space, the, the stuff that has been really fun and really useful is, um, a lot of the network security and network forensics tools are actually a lot easier to integrate than people think things like Zeek bro, um, or, or, you know, the core light equivalencies, getting that kind of visibility, um, where you can place it in a dynamic place around environments is always fun and is always cool. Um, from an endpoint perspective, even if you're working with open source endpoint tools, make sure you have something that gives you that level of reach into an, or in, into an environment where you can, you can see what's going on on the host level. And, and, and like I said earlier, don't, don't treat your cloud like it's somebody else's responsibility. Make sure you have visibility and you conduct assessments on the stuff that's going on up there so you maintain that holistic uh, view of what's going on. Get to a place where even if you're using um, security onion type tools um, that you have something in place no matter how small you are as a, as a, as a company, there's always something out there that can help you get to that level of visibility as long as you prioritize it. And we're in a world where I hope that after a year of Citrix vulnerabilities and VPN vulnerabilities and Microsoft vulnerabilities, um, that folks understand that if you want to work in commodity IT, if you want to have uh, data that you, you are responsible for on any level, that, that you also have a commensurate responsibility that comes with it. And I hope that people um, are open and honest about that and don't um, treat it like it's, um, you know, the, the elephant in the room. Well, right on, Josh. Again, great insight today. Um, our listeners, if you guys enjoyed the episode, make sure you leave some comments uh, on our stream. Let us know if you have any feedback. Jason, thanks for joining the show. And we look forward to catching you guys next time on Burned by the Firewall. <laughs>